Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy We are in the book of Hebrews this morning, and uh, thank you, somebody else was excited, I don't know who that was, was that you Morgan, I don't know, Austin, someone? Okay. Um, we are in the book of Hebrews, and, and in fact, we are in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. If you've been with us or haven't been with us for a little while, chapter 12 in the book of Hebrews, it, it really kind of sets out for us this kind of analogy of the Christian life being like a race, like a marathon, not a sprint, but a marathon, it's a long distance run that we are taking basically in this Christian life. And if you remember when we began chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, uh, it, it kind of started off with these others that had already gone before us. In a sense, it's kind of like this crowd that surrounds us. Uh, we, we talked about these witnesses. They had already finished the race and they're now kind of cheering us around saying, you can do it. You can do it. We made it. You can make it too. And of course, the, the key witness that we were to look at was who? Jesus. We were to fix our eyes, we were told, on Jesus, the, he, the author and the perfecter of our faith, or the author and the finisher. In other words, we talked about how he's, he's writing our actual marathon story, cheering us on. You can do it. You can do it. And, and the author of Hebrews is, is writing to these discouraged Hebrew Christians to encourage them about this very fact. Others have made it. You can make it. But something that we don't always think about, it, and, and it doesn't often happen in races, but in some, sometimes in a race there may be people in the crowd that are actually not there to encourage you but to actually discourage you. And that's actually what the Hebrew Christians were facing at this time. They, they were facing jeers and, and taunting of, 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 of recently kind of disconnected, if you could put it that way, or newly estranged relatives and friends and religious leaders that were essentially telling them, as they're running this race, you're going the wrong way. Stop. Turn around. You're leaving the temple. You're leaving Mount Sinai and Jerusalem. You're leaving your heritage of Abraham and Moses stop. They're actually trying to discourage them. You, you, I don't know if you've ever done any sort of race, but if somebody's telling you that you're going the wrong way, you stop. You get confused. What, what am I doing? Where, am I supposed to go somewhere else, right? And, and that's what essentially was going on with these Hebrew Christians. And so this morning, we're going to actually finish chapter 12. And the author of Hebrews, he's going to give some, some final words. Basically, there's the final words of encouragement in the book of Hebrews to these discouraged Hebrew Christians. The book of Hebrews, Hebrew Christians were simply Christians that were Jews. They had started off with a Jewish uh, upbringing, and now they had turned their life over to Jesus. And because of that, there was a lot of changes that were happening in their life. And so he's going to give them these words of encouragement to not listen to the discouraging voices, but instead he's going to say, you need to focus on three things to finish this race. And so why don't you, if you have a Bible, if you don't, it's quite all right, because if you reach down into the seat in front of you, there will be a Bible in there. And if you turn to page 1008, 
And the reason I can say that is because I believe I have the same Bibles that you guys have in the seats. Um, So page 1008, we will look at Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, We're going to read, we're going to begin, I think, in verse 14, 15, 14. We're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. And then we'll take a moment to pray before we look at a finisher's focus. So Hebrews chapter 12, I do encourage you, you need a Bible to follow along. It'll make it much easier this morning if you do that. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, this morning, as we come before you, um, Lord, there may be those of us in this room right now that are discouraged Christians. We may not be Hebrew Christians, but we're still discouraged Christians. I pray, God, that this morning we would just be encouraged again by your word, by the truth of Scripture. God, that this portion of of your word would speak and bring life again, encourage us and challenge us to get back up, to get going again, to not give up, to, as we're told elsewhere in the Bible in Galatians 6, 9, to not grow weary in doing good. Help us, God. Speak to us this morning. We invite your Holy Spirit to be the leader here, to be the teacher here this morning. We love you and we thank you. Amen. All right, so the first thing, we're going to jump right into this. The first thing that a finisher focuses on is better relationships we're going to see, okay? That's the first thing that the author of Hebrews is going to challenge us with. Better relationships. Two weeks ago, actually I think it was maybe three weeks ago, uh, if you were with us, we finished at verse 13 where the author of Hebrews tells us to, to lift your drooping hands. We talked about this like kind of like in a marathon or a race. If somebody's running and their hands are drooping and their knees are wobbly, you know what's going on. They're done. They're finished. And he says, lift up those drooping hands. Strengthen those weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. That's where we finished the other time that we were in Hebrews. And he's kind of like a coach. He's kind of saying, get up. Get going, you can do it. Get back in the game. Come on, you can do it. And here's what the coach, these are the next words that he says. 
This is what he says, get out there and do. Do this. This is what you need to be about. Verse 14. You have this in your Bibles this morning. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now you might think that's kind of a weird get up and get going kind of rah-rah kind of word. You maybe thought he was going to say something like, get out there and win the lost to Jesus. Go preach the gospel wherever you go. But he says, do these two things. Strive for peace and holiness. And really, it's, it's because, is that not in many ways what the Christian life, if you think about it, if we break it down, the Christian life is really all about. Peace with others. What does that speak of? That speaks of right relationship with others, does it not? That's what that's saying. Strive to be at peace with others. And then he talks about holiness. And what is holiness? Right relationship with God. Do you see how that breaks down? That's what it really gets summed up with. You see, they'd been kicked out of synagogues. They'd been silenced by family members and by the religious leaders and friends and others. They'd been persecuted. But the author says this, instead of striking back, instead of retaliating, he says you need to strive for peace. Notice it's very key here. He doesn't say be at peace. Did you notice that? Because it's not always possible, is it? Right? So he says strive for it. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 12, verse 18. That, that, that tells us what? It says that if at all possible, if, as far as it depends on you to do what? Live at peace with everyone. Right? That's what he's challenging them. He say, do this as best as you can. I know you can't be at peace, but do your best to live at peace. Strive for that, he says. But then he says also this. So strive for right relationships with others. And then he says this. Also strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Which is a little bit scary. If you're not holy, he says, you're not going to see the Lord. Does that not scare you a little bit? Does that kind of make you go, oh boy. I mean, we better move to a monastery. We should probably stop playing cards and turn off that television. If we're really, I mean, you know, I actually have in my notes, I've got capital F-U-N, and then I've got it, you know how Microsoft Word can put a line through it, and it's crossed out. That's what I have written in my notes. Because is that not what we think of when it comes to holiness? Strive for holiness. In other words, it means get rid of any fun in your life. Is that what he's saying? That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's, see, the word holiness, it actually, it literally means just set apart or separated unto God. That's what it literally breaks down to. And it's someone who belongs to God. So he's talked about right relationships with others. Now he's talking about right relationship with God. And a person that's in right relationship with God doesn't mean they can't play cards. Doesn't mean they can't watch movies. What it means is that we allow God to determine what I do and don't do. Right? That's really what they're striving to do. Not the world, not our culture, not our desires, not our flesh, not, not, not our friends even. But what does God say about how I am to live my life? And the reality is that you, not only will you not see God without holiness, without being set apart, but, but others won't see him in you without you being set apart. Do you see that? And so now the author actually, he now goes on to basically talk about things that can interfere in our relationships with others and our, in our relationship with God. That's what the next couple of verses are going to talk about. That's, so he talks about peace with others and right relationship with God. And so now, first of all, he's going to talk about what can interfere in those relationships with people. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Nothing will destroy relationships with others quicker than bitterness or unforgiveness, a root of bitterness or unforgiveness. You know, you may have very legitimate, legitimate reasons to be bitter. You, it may be somebody really hurt you, somebody really wounded you, but here's the problem with a root. 
A root always does something. What does it do? It produces fruit. A root will always produce fruit. And so a root of bitterness is going to produce what in our lives? The fruit of... It's not a hard one, guys. Come on, you can, you can talk. Okay, wake up. I know it's time change Sunday. I know you're struggling. I can hear the people watching online louder than I can hear you. <laughs> a root of bitterness is going to create in us what? A... Oh, that's hardly even any better. <laughs> I'm giving up. It will produce a fruit of bitterness. In other words, there will be just a bitter aspect to your life. And it's something that I don't know that we often think about, but are you a sweet person or are you a bitter person? See, whatever you are is, is just simply the overflow or the outflow of what the root of your life is. And he says, don't, don't be about a root of bitterness because it's just going to produce a fruit of bitterness. Are you somebody that people likes to be around? I think that's just a question you need to ask yourself. Am I sweet or am I bitter? Do people enjoy being around me? And the Hebrew Christians, they did, I believe, had legitimate, you could say that, reasons to be bitter. But what does the author of Hebrews say? Don't let a root of bitterness spring up. And he's basically saying this, you need to rip it out. Be ruthless with it. Rip out that root. And notice what, what did he preface, if you have your Bibles open, what did he preface it with? How do you rip out a root of bitterness? What, would, what did he say right before it? What's that? Yeah. The grace of God. Don't, don't fail to obtain, he said, the grace of God. And then he goes right into this. And don't let a root of bitterness well up within you. He ties these together. They're totally connected. I want to read to you a, a true story about a woman who struggled with bitter feelings toward the woman that murdered her mom. Again, do you think this would be kind of a legitimate reason to be bitter towards someone? The, the woman that murdered her mom, and she, was, she struggled with this bitterness toward her. She thought she'd made progress, and she'd gotten beyond this root of bitterness until she saw a woman at work who looked just like her mom's murderer. I mean, just the sight of her, she said, brought back bitter feelings. And what made it worse was that this woman's office was only four doors down from hers. So she saw her constantly, every day. And she knew, she knew that she had to do something about her bitterness. So one day she approached the woman. And the two women, they introduced themselves. <clears throat> now when the daughter of the, the murdered mom heard this co-worker's name, she was stunned. Guess what the woman's name was? Anyone take a guess? No, it wasn't the same name as her mom. It was, her name was Grace. That's what this woman's name was. It was Grace. And that's right then when she heard this woman's name that the Holy Spirit spoke to her. And the Holy Spirit just said to her, the key to overwhelming the bitter feelings is to recall God's grace toward you. Right? Just like the verse said, don't fail to, fail to obtain God's grace. Don't let this root of bitterness rise up. Because the reality is, is that people who know grace will show grace. Right? Think about it. When we realize how much God has chosen to, forgiven, to forgive us from, will we, how, how can we not withhold forgiveness and love from others? Right? Whatever that person did to you, God has forgiven you. You need to know this. God has forgiven you of so much more. And that's how he ties the grace and the bitterness together. Well, next he goes on to talk about the interferer, if you want to call it, of holiness in our relationship with God, a great interferer of it. Look at verse 16. It says, See to it also that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." Now, you might be wondering, what, what on earth does sexual immorality and unholiness of Esau 
like Esau, rather, have in common? How is there a connection here between this unholiness of Esau and sexual immorality? Especially if you know the story of Esau. You're like, where's our connection here? Was, was Esau sexually immoral in what he did in his sin? Not one bit. So how is there a tie? If you, know, if you don't know the story of, of Esau, um, back in Genesis chapter 25, it begins earlier than that, but in, in chapter 25, there's a man named Esau. And I guess back in chapter 24 is where you'd go where Jacob, you guys have heard of Jacob before. Jacob, of course, became who? Israel. Jacob, what was Jacob's relation to Esau? His brother. In fact, he was a twin. He was a twin of Esau. So Jacob and Esau were twins. And Esau was a man of the field, we are told. He would hunt and he was a wild kind of guy. In fact, when he was born, he was really red and hairy. That's what the scripture honestly says of him. A red, hairy man. And, uh, and when they were born, Jacob was grabbing onto the heel of Esau. And God spoke about all of this. And they fought, in fact, inside the womb of Rebekah, their mother, uh, before they were born. And she's like, what's going on? There's like an army going on or a battle going on inside my stomach. I think that's probably pretty normal anyway, isn't it, when you're pregnant? I remember watching like Andrea and like, be like a foot would go, mm-hmm. But I guess when there's two in there and they're fighting, it gets even worse. Esau comes in one day from being out at the field, out from hunting, and it says in the Bible that he is exhausted and starving, totally just done. And he comes in, and Jacob, his brother, his twin brother, has just made a big pot of lentil stew. Mmm. And Esau comes in, and Esau's like, hey, give me some of the stew. And what, what does Jacob do? Oh, sure. Is that what he does? No, what does he do? He bargains. That's right. He says, well, sure, you can have some of my stew, but you got to pay for it. How about a little bit of a trade? And so what does he offer? What does he say? You give me this and I'll give you some stew. What does he ask for? His birthright, right? Esau was born first, which meant he had the birthright for the family. And Esau basically responds by saying, well, what good is it to me if I'm dead anyway? Fine. Take the birthright. Give me the stew. I'm going to die. I just want the stew. I need to fill my... And, and here's the thing. Esau sold his birthright, if you put it this way, for immediate gratification. That's, that's the tie here with sexual immorality. He, he sold his birthright for immediate gratification. You see, God calls us to a higher sexual standard, doesn't he, than that of the world, what the world would tell us. And the lentil stew can be compared in many ways to sexual immorality. It might fill your stomach right here, right now. It might even taste good. I think this is where the analogy falls apart because I can't imagine lentil stew tasting good. <laughs> Mel, you probably like lentil stew, don't you? Is, yeah, yeah, exactly. Kevin's saying no, Mel's saying yes. Yeah, it's a weird analogy just for that fact alone. But, but the, you know, like, it might even taste really good. That's what he's saying. The sexual morality, but, but here's the reality. Look at what you gave up to enjoy it. Look at what you gave up for it. You gave up the birthright, the blessing. And now the birthright, it carried all kinds of spiritual significance. It basically gave the right to be kind of like the priesthood over the home. And Esau was just like, I don't need that. I don't care about that. But what did Esau want? He didn't care about the birthright, but, but later it tells us here in the passage. What did he want? Read your Bibles. What does it say? He sought something. The blessing. He's like, but I still want the blessing. I want the blessing. I want the double portion. I want all the good stuff that comes with the birthright. And it's like, too bad. You can't have it. You gave up the birthright. You're giving up the blessing as well. You know, nobody, 
Esau threw away all the spiritual significance in his life for one moment of gratification. That's essentially what happened. One moment of satisfaction, one moment of pleasure, a bowl of lentil stew. And nobody looks at Esau. Nobody looks at Esau and says, good deal, Esau. Do they? Good job. That was a good deal. No, no one does. He, why? Because he gave up so much for just some lentil stew. And that's the comparison here. That's what sexual immorality truly is. It might fill you up for the moment. It might taste good for the moment, but you give up so much in return for it. And so we're warned. The author of Hebrews warns us, listen, you won't finish the race if your relationships with others are a mess. That's the first thing he basically says. You've got to have a right relationship with others, but you also need to have a right relationship with God, right? That's, that's the most important one. You can even think about how Jesus summed it all up. He summed up all the law and the prophets, all the commands with what? Two commands. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he says the other is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's essentially what the author of Hebrews is reminding them of. Well, the second thing now that the author encourages the Hebrew Christians and us to focus on is a better mountain. A better mountain. So the writer of Hebrews, uh, he's going to compare for us basically the two mountains that the two covenants were given from. So the old covenant, so you know there's an old covenant and a new covenant. The old covenant, of course, represented by the law, and then the new covenant. What, what, where was the old covenant given? Oh, that was quick. Who said that? Well done, Leanne. You must work at Cape and Ray. Sinai, okay, so represented by Sinai. The old covenant, the law, represented by Sinai. Now, now, what about the new covenant? Where did it come from? What mountain will be represented by that? Zion, well done. Was that you, Jarvis? Good job. Zion. We're actually going to see heaven itself, in a sense. And the first mountain we're going to look at is Mount Sinai. That's what the author of Hebrews draws our attention to. Mount Sinai. And this is what Mount Sinai communicates for us. It communicates simply this, that distance is imperative. In other words, keep your distance. That's what Mount Sinai communicates. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. And just, just remember, the Hebrews, these Hebrew Christians were leaving this in a sense. And this is what all of their friends and family, relatives and religious leaders were telling them, don't leave this mountain. That's what they're trying to get at. And so he says this, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. In many ways, the author is now kind of continuing this idea of holiness, right relationship with God. And he's kind of communicating Listen, you've got a couple options here to be in right relationship with God. You've got Mount Sinai representing the Old Covenant, or you've got Mount Zion representing the New Covenant. And if you remember, with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, how many of you were with us a year and a half ago when we went through Exodus chapter 19? There's more than four of you, but some of your memories are worse than mine, perhaps. We studied all about this. We learned this entire passage of when they went to the mountain. And do you remember what Moses instructed them? Before they even got to the mountain, what did he say? Do you remember any of the things that he said? Okay, purify yourself, wash your clothing even, clean yourselves and your clothes. And then the other thing, I'm not going to act this one out, was he says, abstain from any sexual relations. Okay, so that was the other thing he did. He said, clean yourselves up, clean your clothes, and abstain from any sexual relations. And then he also instructed them to do something else. And that was to put, this passage actually mentions it, I think. Put a, do you remember? A fence around the mountain. 
Do you remember that? He said, because if any animal or if any person gets too close, what do they have to be? Stoned. They have to be killed. That, that's what, and it was, all, it was all setting them up to meet with God, with a holy God. This is what the old covenant, the law, was representing. And then when God shows up, what happens? You remember the scene. There was fire. There was lightning. There was smoke. There was, there was earthquakes. There was trumpet blasts. Do you remember this? It was, it was insane. This incredible pyrotechnics show goes on. And it's all to warn them, all to, to say to them, basically, get ready to meet with God. Get ready to meet with God. Keep your distance. That's what it was all communicating, a holiness, a reverence, a fear. And then what happened? Right after that, God speaks to Israel the Ten Commandments. He speaks, he declares the Ten Commandments. And do you remember how Israel responded in that moment? Anyone remember? Well, yeah, they, they followed it up quite quickly with the golden calf, but that was in a few moments. Right then and there, what do they do? They're basically like, stop. They say, stop talking. We don't want to hear anymore. They freak out. And they say, talk to Moses, but don't talk to us. Exodus 19 and 20. 20 is actually where they say that. Talk to Moses, but don't talk to us. They're freaked right out. And in fact, we read even in this passage that even Moses, it said, what did it say? Even Moses trembled with fear. Even Moses was a bit freaked out. Moses, who had met with God at the burning bush, had that whole experience. Even Moses trembled with fear. That was Mount Sinai. That represented the old covenant and the law. Now, how well did, how effective was it in, in helping the, the Jewish people, the, the Hebrews, live holy before God? Was it effective? No, what happened? Less than 30 days later, they're having a drunken orgy, dancing around a golden calf, saying, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt, Israel. It was not effective whatsoever. Not at all. So that was one option or one mountain where, where they could experience holiness, right relationship with God. But the second mountain is that of Mount Zion. And it communicates something else about distance. It says not that distance is imperative, but it says that distance is impossible. That's what it says. When I say impossible, what I mean is that you can't help under this covenant be close and intimate with God. It doesn't say keep a distance. It says draw near. Draw near. You can't stay away now. Look at verse 22. But you, as a Christian, have come to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He just gets so excited here. Look how many ants. He just can't stop. And to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the meter of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see that? He's like getting ramped up. He's like, ah, oh, there's so much good stuff here. This is the mountain that we come to in Jesus Christ under the new covenant. And so Sinai or Zion, which one do you want to live at? Right? Which one do you choose? Do you see the contrast? You're actually going to walk and open up your Bibles. You're going to need them, okay? If, you, if you've closed it again, open it up. Whatever page that was, 1008 or something. Because we're going to walk through it. Verse 22. We're just going to quickly look at this. He says, we've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. First of all, was there even a city at Sinai? There was no city. It was in the middle of the desert. There was no life. There was nothing. Nothing. Then he goes on. He says, we've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Of course, Sinai was associated with what city or, or place, you would say. It'd be associated with Egypt. It was close in proximity geographically to Egypt. But Sinai, or Zion rather, on the other hand, is associated with where? 
Heaven. In fact, where is our citizenship? Heaven. He goes on, we've come to Mount Zion to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now, the Bible tells us that the law was given and administered to Moses by angels. That's what the Bible actually tells us. So whether they gave him the stones, we know that God inscripted with his fingers, but other parts, we even read it, I think, in, in chapter 1 or 2, where it speaks that the law was actually given by angels to Moses. God declared it, but angels somehow gave it, administered it to Moses. Maybe he, they gave them the, the plates. So, so basically saying this, there's, there's a number of angels that surrounded the giving of the law. But what does Mount Zion have? What does it say there? Yeah, depending on countless thousands, one says. It says innumerable in the ESV. Innumerable angels. So many you can't even count. So many. So you got a few angels versus innumerable angels. Right? Take that, Mount Sinai. Verse 23 says to the assembly. Notice there's probably a footnote in your Bible. Some of your translations may actually just say this. To the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You could also include with this later in the verse where it says, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's all speaking about the church. Mount Sinai, this is pretty incredible. I mean, Mount Sinai had, we don't know for sure, but between one to three million people that had been set free from Egypt. That's a lot of people. So Mount Sinai's got a lot of people. But what does Mount Zion have? It has all the redeemed of God's church through all the ages. Far more people. That's, do you see what he's getting at here? This is a way better mountain, he's saying. He goes on, we've come to Mount Zion to God, the judge of all. There was judgment at Mount Sinai, was there not? Of course there was. What was the judgment at Mount Sinai? Put up a fence, because if anybody goes too close, stoning, killed. <laughs> that was the judgment. Well, the judgment, here's the thing, the judgment of Mount Zion, there was judgment, but it was put upon Jesus Christ. Right? That's what the first 11 chapters of Hebrews in many ways is trying to establish for us, the work that Christ did for us. So now, now we actually read earlier in Hebrews, it's not about keeping distance. We come now to, the, to God, the judge of all. How do we approach his throne? Boldly, with confidence. Isn't that crazy? Do you see this? The contrast here. And, and then verse 24, it says that we've come to Mount Zion to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Was there a mediator at Mount Sinai. Who was the mediator at Mount Sinai? Moses. It wasn't Jesus, it was Moses. Was there a covenant at Mount Sinai? Yes. What was that covenant called? Just old. It's the old covenant. Old. <laughs> right? But, but Mount Zion has something else. What does Mount Zion have? It has a mediator? Does it have a mediator? Yes. And who's the mediator? Is it Moses? It's Jesus, far greater. That's what the author of Hebrews was telling us way back in like chapter two and three. Jesus blows away Moses. He's way better, right? That's what he's getting at. And not only is there, there's also a mediator that's better, but there's also a covenant that better, is better. Why is it a better covenant? Because it is new. It's like you're working with Windows 2000 versus all the Mac lovers are gonna love me. A Mac. I don't use Macs. Anyway, but you know what I'm saying, right? It's like Windows 10 or whatever versus... 2000. Wasn't it when Windows 2000, wasn't there? Some old operating system that was garbage. That was a, sorry, I, that was a while ago. I didn't think it was that long ago. <laughs> Maybe some of you weren't even alive for Windows 2000. <laughs> Shows how old I am. Where was I? <laughs> the old covenant, right? Yeah, that's right. We got a new covenant. It's better. I just hope you're getting the fact that the, 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 Mount Zion's better. That's the whole point he's trying to get at here. Okay, one more, one more thing here. We'll finish it off. We've come, finally we've come to Mount Zion 
to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel, son of Adam and Eve. Abel, killed by who? Cain. Killed by his brother Cain. What does his blood, this is representing the old covenant or the law. What does the blood of Abel speak? Justice must be satisfied. Bring vengeance. That's what the blood of Abel says. Justice must be satisfied. Bring vengeance. Well, the sprinkled blood of Christ is far better. Why? Because the sprinkled blood of Christ on the cross speaks that justice has been satisfied. Bring mercy. Isn't that amazing? And that's what he's saying. This is the mountain that you come to. There's really no comparison. It's like trying to compare like Whistler and Mount Seymour or some other rinky-dink little mountain. There's no comparison. No comparison. That's what he's getting at here. And you see, ultimately, Mount Sinai, it said, stay away. I'm a holy God, and you are an unholy people. Mount Zion says in Jesus Christ, come near. Draw close, boldly, confidently, because in Christ you can be forgiven. You can come face to face with a holy God. You can be made right in him and in him alone. The work has been done for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I personally would rather, I'd rather pitch my tent at Mount Zion rather than Mount Sinai. That's the offer that he gives us. And that's what he's trying to encourage him. Listen, you're not, don't listen to those people that are telling you you're leaving the good for the bad. That's, that's complete, that's wrong. Mount Zion is so far better than Mount Sinai is what he's saying. And you would know this too. If you have lived your life as a Christian for any amount of time and you have tried to live your life by rules and you tried to live your life motivated by the law, right? I remember when I taught Galatians to us as a church many, many years ago, probably near Windows 2000, somewhere around that era, not quite, but a while back. I remember teaching the book of Galatians to our church and I have to be honest, I was scared to teach the book of Galatians. The reason I was scared is because it's so full of the grace of God that I was like, they're going to go crazy. They're going to they're learn all about the grace of God and they're going to start disobeying. But you know what I found? I, I was preaching to myself. I was, I, you know what I found is that a far better motivator to live for God is the grace of God, not the law of God. Law and rules does not motivate me to, but when I came face to face with how much God has done for me, and his goodness and his mercy that says, I don't get what I deserve. Instead, I get grace that says, I get what I don't deserve. The, the motivation to live a right life changes completely. All of a sudden, I'm like, Lord, I want to do those right things for you. I want to live for you. And that's what he's getting at here. Listen, the Christian life, it's not to be defined by rules to keep. That's not what it's about. It's to be defined by Jesus Christ, by the work that he accomplished for us on the cross through his death and his resurrection. So he says, listen, you've got, you've got a better mountain, but he says also, thirdly, you need to focus on a better foundation. Look at verse 25. See that no one, oh sorry, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. There were consequences for rejecting God at Mount Sinai, were there not? Right, when they did their little golden calf incident, there were consequences, absolutely there was. But you need to make no mistake, there are also consequences for rejecting Jesus under the new covenant. Make no mistake about it. You know, often we think of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as kind of two different gods. A lot of people outside the church think it, and a lot of people inside the church think the same thing. We think of God of the, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant kind of being full of judgment and anger and punishment. That's what it seems like. And we think of God in the New Testament represented in Jesus as the, the, the God of the 
the blue beauty pageant sash, who leaps through fields of daisies and pats children on the head and is all full of love, right? That's kind of how we equate them. But they're the same God. They are the same God. The Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant is the same God. We need to understand this. In fact, I would say this. There is far more mercy in the Old Testament than you're probably aware. Far more. If you look, there are countless times that God showed mercy in the Old Testament. Over and over. And I'd also say this. There's far more judgment in the New Testament than you're probably likely aware. Sometimes I get a little scared sometimes when I read the book of Acts. I'm like, wait a minute, that's the New Testament church. That's the church that I'm a part of. In fact, Jesus, if you think about it, he spoke more about hell than anybody else. Far more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. You know Jesus, the blue beauty pageant sash guy, right? The lovey God, that one, the nice one. He spoke more about hell than anyone else. The reason he did is because he is love. Because he wants nobody to go there. And so the the real question is, will you accept or reject Christ? As this verse warns us. Because look at verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So at Mount Sinai, God, God's voice, actually, we're told, actually shook the earth. But we're told here that he's not done shaking. Not at all. You see, the old covenant at Mount Sinai, it began with a shaking, but we're told that the new covenant is actually, if you read other passages of Scripture, actually says it will end with a universal shakeup. As it says here, he will shake not only the earth, but the heavens too. Now, why is God going to do this? Look at verse 27 in your Bibles. What does he say? He says, to remove the things that can be shaken, to reveal those things that can't be shaken, the things that will remain. Now, we live on Vancouver Island, and we know a little bit about shaking, right? Do you remember in elementary school learning, you know, you do your earthquake drills and all those things and go under the desks and all this kind of stuff, right? We've got kind of, you know, we, we experience some kind of, I would say this, a little bit of fun earthquakes, if you want to put it that way. They're, I, I, I would call them almost cute earthquakes. What do I mean by that? It's like, you know about it. It's like you've been at home at night and all of a sudden you feel like shaking. You're like, is that the washer? No, it's not on. It's like, no, the, the, there's an earthquake. And the lights might flicker. You might hear, you know, maybe you've been in a, a bit of a tremor where the, the dishes rattle. And the, have you, have any, you've probably, if you've lived on the island, we've all experienced it in some way or another. Those are kind of cute earth, earthquakes, right? Because the next day you kind of, you see everybody you're like, hey, did you feel the earthquake? And it's all kind of exciting and fun. You're kind of nervous in the moment because you're like, is it going to get bigger? Ah, that's just a cute one, right? And, and, and then you, you, you talk about, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw it. Oh, I didn't even notice it. I slept right through it and that kind of thing. But then there's the scary earthquakes, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? The scarier, the real earthquakes, which probably none of us in this room have really encountered. I have a good friend that was in Japan. You remember those years ago? Um, I don't know how many years ago it was now. Maybe 10 or more. I'm not sure. 12? That the tsunami happened? There we go, 12 years ago, that the tsunami happened in Japan. I've got a good friend that was living in Japan when the earthquake hit. And he said, I was fortunate. I was living in the, the, the downstairs of my apartment building. I was on the ground floor. He said, I crawled out my window onto the grass because it started just shaking like so violently. He said, I crawled onto the grass. I couldn't even stand, he said. 
And he just laid on the grass as he watched buildings just do this, sway back and forth, and screaming and people just freaking out. And he said it, he just laid there and just prayed. And he said it felt like it lasted for an eternity. It just would not stop and would not stop and would not stop. And he just laid on the ground. Those are scary earthquakes. Those are the real ones. They're not the cute ones that we get here on the island. And you know that when an earthquake comes, it's all about where you are, right? Where are you when an earthquake hits? When the shaking happens, what is your foundation? You know, last week we had the creation ministry speaker, Clarence, and he shared about that, that uh, uh, remember that apartment building in China? Maybe that was the evening. I forget if it was the morning or the evening that he mentioned that. But it was just, it had fallen over, <laughs> right? Because of its foundation. It had a poor foundation. It just had some pylons that were stuck into dirt. Didn't go deep enough down. Its foundation was not solid. It fell over. And when it comes to shaking, it's all about what your foundation is. Listen, as Christians, Jesus doesn't promise us not to have any shaking in our life. You know that if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time. There will be shaking. In, In fact, maybe right now your life is getting shaken up a little bit. Maybe the career that you thought was so safe and secure is being shaken. Maybe the family relationships that you thought were so solid right now are being shaken. Maybe your health, which has always been fine and never had issues, right now is being shaken a little bit. God will allow shaking in our lives to reveal what in our life is founded upon Him. Just like the verse says, what will remain. And here's the good news. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. You see, you can have a foundation that when the shaking comes, no matter what, it is firm and won't be falling apart. It's called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all that he asks is that we worship him, he says here, in reverence and awe with thankful hearts. You know, right now, maybe, maybe your life isn't being shaken, but it will be shaken at some point. And so I just want to ask you to think about this this morning. How is your foundation? What is your foundation even? We're not guaranteed no trouble and no shaking. In fact, I think sometimes as Christians, we're guaranteed a little bit more, if I'm honest. Sometimes that's how God reveals himself through us. There will be shaking in life. But you know what's amazing is that, that God promises you to be with you. He'll be with you through every bit of shaking. I've been so encouraged the last little while by Psalm 139. I've just, it's encouraged me because of the the promise of God's presence that no matter where I go, he's with me. This is what it says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the depths in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It's like I can't get away from him. I love it. It encourages me. He says even this, if I say, surely the darkness shall, oh, shall cover me and the light about me be night. In other words, he's saying even in the darkest, lowest times, even the darkness, he says, is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Why? Because he's with us. The light of the world will be with us. And that's encouraged me that no matter what I go through, he'll be with me. You know what that encourages me too? No matter where my kids are. God's presence is going to be with them. No matter what. 
You can't get away from God's presence. You can't get away from it. So there will be shaking, but he will be with us. And then the chapter closes in verse 29 with this, for our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. You know, this verse has often been quoted as a bit of a frightening verse. It's kind of like the verse to scare people a little bit. You know, it's like, you better watch out. God's a consuming fire. He's going to get you. And which is kind of odd because does that not kind of bring your thoughts back to Mount Sinai? Do you know what I mean? Isn't it kind of weird that the author of Hebrews is finishing with this? I thought we just got past that saying that Sinai, no, we don't go to Mount Sinai. We go to Mount Zion where we draw close to God boldly, confidently. What's this consuming fire thing? Is it kind of like he's saying, you know what, come close, but not too close. It's like there's grace, but keep a little bit of loss just peppered in there just to keep you in line. Is that what this is saying? Don't forget God's consuming fire. I don't think that's what the author is doing. I don't think he's drawing us back to Mount Sinai, to living, to living grace, but with a bit of law. Yeah, there was a consuming, and there still is, I would say, a consuming, frightening fire on Mount Sinai. The law of the old covenant still burns. We need to be aware of that. It's still there. It hasn't been abolished. Jesus himself said that. But here's the other reality, is that there was a consuming fire that was poured out on Mount Zion right? I think this is what the author is reminding us. It was upon Mount Zion in Jerusalem that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was nailed to the cross. And it was there that he received the consuming fire of God's judgment upon him in our place. There the fire of God's judgment was was quenched in Jesus, was satisfied in Christ. And so therefore, you don't have to live by the law, by works, by a Mount Sinai-focused life. Jesus invites you to Mount Zion. Come live at Mount Zion. Live by his mercy and by his grace. As we close this morning, we're going to transition to communion just in a minute here. And I just want you to think about this. What mountain are you living at? What's your foundation? You know, Jesus invites you today to come to live at Mount Zion. To live in the shadow of the grace of Mount Zion. Not in the works that you can do, not in your efforts, but in the work that he completed for you on that cross. And maybe you've been setting up at Mount Sinai. Maybe you've been basing your life on what you can do and very religious, trying to do the right things. But in Jesus at Mount Zion, he says there's no more doing. It's been done. It's been done. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know why you're here even this morning. But I want to say this, that there's an invitation that Jesus gives you. Maybe you've walked away. Maybe you've never been introduced to Christ. I, I, I want to say that, that communion, as the, the team comes back up to prepare to lead us in communion this morning, today is your day. You can return to Mount Zion. You can experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that God has for you in Jesus Christ. I want to say this, that right now, right now is your moment. Right now is your time. That's what the table that... We are going to, I didn't, can somebody grab me communion, please? I didn't actually get any. Thank you so much. That's what this represents. This represents your offer for forgiveness. That through his death and through his resurrection, you can have peace with God. You can have life forever with God. And so I want to give you that opportunity, just right now even, I I want us just, Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're walking with God or not, 
just to take a moment right now, just, just even just close our eyes and just prepare our hearts. Just allow the Lord to begin to speak to us. Lord, what is the mountain that I'm living at? Maybe I've been a Christian my entire life, but I live more at Mount Sinai than I do at Mount Zion. I live more based upon my works than upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross. And I thank you, Lord, that this little cracker and this juice represents your saving work, your body that was nailed to the cross in my place, your blood that was shed, that speaks a better word, that doesn't speak like the blood of Abel, that that says justice must be satisfied, bring vengeance. Instead, your blood says justice has been satisfied, bring mercy. I want to live under that mercy. I want to live under that mountain, God. And so, Father, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that their foundation is not Mount Zion, Lord, that you'd begin to shake up their lives to show them, God, what it is that they're basing their life in, what will remain. And Lord, we invite you right now just to begin to speak, to show each and every one of us in this room where our foundation sits, where our foundation lies. Speak to us, Lord. Prepare our hearts even now. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, listen, you can today. You can put your faith and your hope in him. You can turn from your own efforts put your works aside and you can trust and rely on the work that he did for you and so I just I want to make sure I give the opportunity if there's anybody here this morning that that doesn't know Jesus or isn't walking with God right now that they have the opportunity today to put their hope and their faith in him and so if you're here I would love to just pray for you I'm not going to point you out but if you would say Peter can you pray for me? I want to I put my faith and my hope in the work that Jesus Christ did for me, not in what I can do, not in my life, but in his life, his payment. So anybody here that would say that, Peter, that's me. I want to give my life to Christ today. Would you just put up your hand? Or maybe you want to come back to Christ today, maybe even walking and doing things in your own strength, in your own self. Is there anybody here that would say that this morning? Father, I thank you for the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you invite us into a new and living hope. I pray right now, Jesus, for those that are without hope. Maybe they're joining us online and they are without hope. Maybe they're in this room right now and they do not have hope. Lord, that today we would look upon the work that you did on that cross and that we would see hope again. We would see that Jesus, no matter what I've done, no matter where I've gone, that you still have a plan and a purpose for me. I just pray that you would breathe hope back into lives that are hopeless. For those that are like the Hebrew Christians that are discouraged. Because Jesus, that's why you came. 
bring life, to bring forgiveness, to bring hope. So as we have the emblems, if you don't have any, there are some more at the back as well. I want to read this morning from Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to begin in verse 26. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's take the bread together. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that I don't need to punish myself. I don't need to put myself through some sort of abuse because of the garbage that I've done, but Jesus, you paid it all. It goes on, it says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's drink the juice together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Can we just praise him now? Just lift your voices and thanks. Thank you, God, that you have brought us to a better mountain. You've placed our feet on a better foundation, Lord, that now we can actually live with better relationships with one another and with you. I thank you that you have given us the ability, you've given us the strength to even do this. So we give you all the glory, Jesus. We give you all the honor. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. God, we thank you for that firm foundation in Christ alone. This is the foundation that we stand upon. Not on what we do or don't do, but on the basis of what Christ has done for us. And so I just pray over each and every person right now in this place. I pray hope. I pray encouragement. I pray peace. Father, I pray that they would find a foundation, a mountain and relationships that are founded in you, Jesus. So bless them, I pray, each and every person that's here. Be honored through us, Lord, as we see all that you've done to us. May we now just give our lives back to you in response. Say, yes, Lord, I will live for you. We thank you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. And we praise your name. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.